When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for our second episode of the week. I promise it will be mailbag heavy. A little coaching carousel stuff. Interesting how this is working out, Bruce. There's been a Power 5 head coach fired every week since week two, right? And so then the question is, will there be another one this week? But just There to, might just, be. There might yeah. be. Um, let's keep an eye on Colorado. Carl Durrell's buffs have been blown out by 25-plus in each of their first four games. Um, that is one that wouldn't shock me if that one opened up soon. The weird thing about Carl Durrell is it was an odd hire to begin with. He gave him a, a pretty big contract. So it's not, it's not like SEC buyout money, but I believe it's in the $10 million neighborhood. Um, and also like, you could see this coming a mile away in the off season. They had so many guys transfer out and some of them are already playing key roles in other, other teams. Um, and then he he purposely, from what I've been told, kind of purposefully chose to go light on bringing in incoming transfers. So what did they expect was going to happen? I don't know. It's a, it's weird because he took over in his first, uh, you know, in the pandemic year, and they actually played probably as well as they have in like five years. Um, but it's been, you know, since that year, it's been a you know, big uh, decline. And I don't know if there's much reason for anybody looking go. Yeah. They're going to get this thing solved. I mean, from everything I've heard, people inside the program don't think there's like, they have like draft prospects even on this roster. It's sad. You know, after I did that big, I did that big story in Colorado in the spring and how they've struggled to get, you know, to to find themselves after the glory years of the nineties, by the way, Think about this for a second, right? So last week, Georgia Tech, who's awful, fired their coach. Now we're talking about Colorado. Hard to believe there was a season, 1990, mm-hmm. when those were the split national champions, Colorado and Georgia Tech. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's strange symmetry. Um, obviously, Georgia Tech has a lot better local recruiting base. As soon as it happened, I, I, I went straight to Dion. But give us a better picture of who you think is realistic candidates i think Dion is a candidate there he's done really well at jackson state he has recruited very well and as you know as somebody who lived in atlanta i mean he was a big star both for the falcons and the braves um now maybe kids won't remember recruits may not remember him as a as playing for either of those teams but their parents and their aunts and uncles and and high school coaches certainly are going to remember him uh he's got He's prominent. He's a dynamic figure, certainly with his with his Aflac commercials with Nick Saban. He's mm-hmm. one of the most visible. Uh, I was going to say like a non Power Five head coach, but he's way more visible than most Power Five head coaches, to be honest. Uh, the question is going to be: We think Auburn is going to open up before too long, and Auburn is a better job. It's the question when you talk to people who are inside Georgia Tech who, by the way, also now have to do the double that I think Auburn's going to have to do, which is hire an AD and then hire a head coach, is how committed to Georgia to playing football at a high level is Georgia Tech. And if that's the case, I think um, Dion will be in the mix for Auburn, and I think Auburn's going to be a more attractive job. Now, what's an interesting subplot to this, look, I, I think he's definitely a candidate at Georgia Tech, um, but... Georgia Tech had success under Paul Johnson with the triple option. They obviously parted ways and wanted to go in a different direction. If they have thoughts of going back to that, there's Jeff Munkin from Army. Done an amazing job at Army. He coached there at Georgia Tech. Uh, He had success at Georgia Southern as a head coach. 
do you want to go back to that system though? Because there's a lot of people there who just don't feel like that's the that's the ideal I, go. Yeah, I can't see them doing that. It did it just sapped all the excitement around Georgia tech football, even though they were winning. I mean, they went to three ACC title games under Paul Johnson and, but all you ever heard was, Oh, this is boring. I can't really get into this. So um, yes, you're right. I I actually lived in Atlanta at a time when (laughs) Georgia tech was better than Georgia at that time. And I hate saying that because our guy, Jim Donnan was the coach of Georgia, but Georgia tech had Joe Hamilton. Des white was the receiver, right? Am I remembering that right? Um, Joe Hamilton was fantastic. He was like he one was. of my first ESPN magazine features. And I remember he played a game when Georgia Tech, I'm sorry, when FSU was rolling, where I think Joe was like 22 of 25. Um, he was a great high school basketball player who kind of was like a point guard out there. I would be curious what Joe would have, what Joe's draft prospects would have been like if he came along now as opposed to in that day when people were gonging him for being like 5'10 or wherever. Yeah, he was 20 years ahead of his time. Um, anyway, you're, you're never going to be – I mean, there's way more UGA fans. And frankly, a lot of SEC alumni from Auburn and, and all in Tennessee, they're all there. But you could, there, there was excitement around Georgia. I used to go – it was fun. I would They would play a Thursday night game every year when I lived there. We'd go, go to the Thursday night game. It's a great atmosphere. So – you need somebody that's going to get that back. Dion would get that back. Dion would make people excited about Georgia Tech football. In an instant. Now, look, Jeff Collins, I, I like just a word about him. I I wasn't Scott Frost wrong. Like, I didn't think he was like, I thought Scott Frost, you know, you, you and I both thought that was a great hire. At the time. I thought Jeff Collins would do very well at Georgia Tech. He did pretty well at Temple in a brief two years as the head coach there. But he is a, you know, as a rep, as a really good recruiter, he really efforted the the branding of Georgia Tech, which I think coming out of Paul Johnson, I think they needed to do. Um, but there was just a, a bunch of stuff where he never really got traction. And then Jamar Gibbs, the best player in the program, goes to Alabama. That doesn't help. And I think the timing of taking over in the pandemic or really trying to get momentum certainly hurt. So what do you do now? I mean, I heard I hear you on on Jeff Munkin. Look, there's another option. What about the other option? Well, let's get to him in a second. But like Jamie Chadwell runs a more uh, unconventional option. It's not a system. It's different. He's obviously has uh, done a really, really good job there, you know, with his quarterback, Grayson McCall, who put up really nice numbers. You know, the hesitance for Jamie Chadwell from a bunch of places has always been, well, his whole staff are guys who are not never been in power five. I mean, East Tennessee guy who has done well at Coastal, I could see him there. I like I I could see that. The other Munkin, um, obviously Todd Munkin, he has head coaching experience. We talked last week about some of the creative stuff he's doing with Brock Bowers in the run game, and he is local. I mean, I think he would honestly. I, I think he would make more sense to me than than his cousin, right? Um, at this time. So I would agree. Let me throw a couple other names and you tell me if you, where you fit on them. All right. So I'm going to give you five names. You rank them in your order. Sean Lewis at Kent state, who, by the way, gave Georgia probably their toughest game so far, which isn't, I was saying that much, but Sean Lewis, Kent state, Kane Womack from South Alabama, done a really good job in a brief time there. Both had young head coaches, Charles Huff at Marshall, also a young head coach. And then I'm going to give you, uh, one coordinator, Bill O'Brien, who ha- was a Georgia Tech assistant, I believe, when you lived there, and obviously now at Alabama, and Del McGee, run, uh, run game coordinator, running backs coach at Georgia, spent a lot of his time in the state as a high school coach and has a strong recruiting rep. Give me which of those guys most interest you if you're not saying Jamie Chadwell or you're not saying Dion or Todd Monkey. I, I don't, I feel like I would need to kind of learn more about the the guys like i mean kane womack it seems to me that south alabama is off to a good start but i mean i'm i'm dealing with a very limited sample size there very limited sample size on charles huff sean lewis has been going a little bit longer at kent state um i get the del mcgee recruiting aspect bill o'brien is so bill i would say bill o'brien interests me most just because he has you know experience at the highest level and like you said worked at georgia tech in the in the the glory days but 
does Bill O'Brien get people excited about Georgia Tech football? I would guess, I might be wrong about this, but I would guess um, if it came down to Todd Munkin, Bill O'Brien, I think people might end up being more excited about Todd Munkin than Bill I would agree. You know, I think um, there would definitely be interest in getting somebody away from Kirby Smart. Yes. More than getting, you know, I feel like you pull somebody away from Nick Saban and it's a little like the Terminator. You take the, took a piece of it and it just regenerates and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Munkin has been quiet. And I don't know if it's fair to say quietly been a, a really good addition, but I think his temperament, his personality have been a good, good fit there with Kirby in that, in that place. Whereas not to say anybody can be Nick Saban's OC, but I, I just think there's a little more of pulling one away from Georgia and, you know, look, one guy, they, they had different circumstances. Both Before really you move on from that, does it concern you at all that Todd Munkin, wait a minute, I forgot about this. Uh, Todd Munkin didn't get fired from Southern Miss. Todd Munkin left oh, Southern he left. Miss he left. to go be the OC with the Bucks, And he, he went from one and 11 to three and nine to nine and five at Southern Miss. No, I mean, he did. a, And they had really, really uh, shaky administrative su- like support in terms of like the, the power dynamic was really funky there at the time. I, that was a like what I was about to say was we all knew what was going on with Bill O'Brien and the job he inherited at Penn State. It was a, you know, I would put what he did there in a shorter period of time compared to like what Matt Rule did in the wake of the Art Riles, you know, Ian McCaw mess in a, you know, just like where the place feels toxic at that point. And, and I think O'Brien did a really good job stabilizing it. I think most people don't know how kind of messy the South, you know, what he did at Southern Miss there. Um, So I I would, I, I think they're very comparable in a lot of ways in their profile, except one guy I feel like maybe people don't know because he didn't jump in to be an NFL head coach. And he wasn't at his high profile place at Penn State where people were talking about the guy trying to trying to clean up the mess. I think I'm pretty sold on Todd Munkin. He was also the OC for the 2011 Oklahoma State team that should have played in the national championship game. So so and he's and he's just the OC of a national championship team. I think I think that's my guy. Okay, Todd Munkin versus Jamie Chadwell, Stu. You're the AD. Yeah, that's tough. I really like Jamie Chadwell. I I um, but for this particular job, I think I'm going Munkin. Wow. Okay. But I'm still going Dion first. And yeah, I would go Dion first. People if think I'm crazy, but who thinks? You're I mean, crazy? you know how do you know how good his who are the people like, who think you're crazy? By the way, I think there's some people who still think Dion is like all show, and and I understand why they think that. But look at what his done. He's done with that program. They're, they're just crushing people. There's also probably a lot of those same people thought, you know, probably undervalued what Dion actually was as a football player. It's like, you know, I've talked to enough people, like I didn't work with Dion at NFL Network or whatever, but I talked to a bunch of people who did. And I'm not saying because, because you were um, very accountable and very professional and very conscientious means you'd be a good head coach. But I think it, some of those traits definitely carry over because the people who aren't self-aware and the people who, you know, those are the ones who, when they, when I feel like it's a rebuild and not like you got the keys to the Cadillac or you got the keys to the high end car. And right now Georgia tech, isn't that high end car. I think you need to have those guys who have the self-awareness and the diligence and the, you know, whatnot, which is apparently he has a lot of. So. By the way, I've only come in contact in person with Deion Sanders once, and you're never in a million years going to guess the context. Ready? Do you remember when Dion briefly played for the Cincinnati Reds? I do, yes. So I was an intern for the Cincinnati Inquirer, and I did some Red stuff. It was very intimidating being a, what was I, 2021 in a Major League Baseball clubhouse because some of these guys were still kind of like, you know, they were a big deal to me. Uh, so yeah, Dion was there in the clubhouse and I just remember a clubhouse attendant or somebody, you know, some younger guy delivering him a subway foot long. 
who is the most awestruck person you've ever been around? Were you know you the answer to that. I think you were there. No, maybe you weren't in the room. When I finally met my childhood idol, Pete Rose. Oh, I wasn't there. Remember, I was on the road. Yeah, I was not in there. The, in the Fox avocado room. Um, God, this story would be so great if you could tell it in total, but you cannot. Too uh, not safe for work, but you know, let's just say he lived up to his image. Um, you have another one, a second one, then. You, what's yours? And I'll think of mine. I mean, for me, it's it's uh, it's definitely Charles Barkley, and it was a double because he knew who I was. Like it was at it was the year Auburn played Oregon, and they had a party at the W, and I went with Leach and two of Leach's buddies. One of them was a Houston guy. They both might have been, and they knew Barkley from his time with the Rockets. And I just remember, John, you maybe have to bleep this. It's your call. But like he saw Leach, and I he was like. Mike Leach, they ESPN fucked you so bad. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> and he looked at me and he were like, he knew my name and it shocked me. And then we ended up drinking with him, you know, and he's it was, a big college football fan, big Auburn guy. He is. He is like his buddy, Frank Thomas. They're huge college football fans. So, I mean, I got to admit, like this past week was very weekend was we were in Michigan with Charles Woodson and I've been around Charles a little bit, but like, um, I kind of pedestal him as a as a football player differently than most of the guys I've worked with just because, you know, he's a Hall of Fame NFL player. He's arguably the greatest defensive player in the history of the sport. And you can make that case. I mean, he's the only one who's really won a Heisman. So um, there's just a little bit of something, you know, kind of about him that's different. In my – I don't get starstruck now other than Pete Rose. But, you know, when I was first starting to do this stuff in college – um, by the way, I've noticed that college kids today, college sports writers are much more, uh, I, I don't know if it's because of Twitter or social media, but they, they seem to me just like much less intimidated by covering big time college sports. I, I, you're offended that they don't, that they don't bow <laughs> no. down to presence. That's what you're saying. Isn't it? My friend, Brett Curlin, great friend to this day, he and I were in, in doing journalism together. I was at the school paper. He was at the radio station. And we would go on these assignments and it was just like, uh, it's Bob Knight. Oh my God. It's Bob Knight. Uh, Joe Paterno. Like suddenly you're covering these, these guys who were icons when you were growing up. Um, I had, I had Michael one. Jordan. I had a freelance assignment during the NBA finals where I wasn't me alone. It was a scrum, but like, there I am interviewing Michael Jordan. And it was just so surreal. I had one with Jack Nicholas. That was the first PGA tournament I'd ever covered. And it was a little, we were in the locker room and I just remember thinking, wow, he's a much, you know, like, you know, he, he was probably 50 at the time. I don't even know how old he was, but he was around that age. And I was just like, wow, he's much smaller in person than I was expecting him to be. Um, but it was like, yeah, this is Jack Nicholas, you know, growing somebody who grew up golfing a lot. I just thought that was like a, you know, he was, a, he was a larger than life presence. I honestly cannot remember how we got on this topic. What the heck were we uh, I talking think it about? Came to do with do it started down the road of Dion, I believe. Yes, I told you my one Dion story. Okay, I think we've done enough on Georgia Tech, uh, Colorado. Yeah, we think. I mean, it's sometimes a little foolish to try to start speculating about candidates before they actually the job actually opens. But I just I can't imagine Carl Durrell is going to be their coach next year. The way things are going. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As always, uh, we're going to start to the mailbag. As always, send your question to the audiblepod at gmail.com. I'd be curious to hear who you guys were most awestruck by or starstruck by. Yeah, send us send us that question. Who's the most, somebody you met that you were the most awestruck by? It doesn't have to be sports either. I was pretty awestruck when I met the uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia folks in the uh, USC press box in 2008. Um, okay, Nicole and and 
I love it. She's N I C H O L E. You don't see that very often. Nicole Davidson in Austin, Texas. Hi, Bruce and Stu. Love the podcast and look forward to y'all's episodes every week. As a diehard Longhorn, I had a lot of hope after the Bama game and the second half comeback for UTSA. Last week gave me a lot of concerns, however. Should Texas fans be pressing the panic button? Or do you all see that loss at Tech as a fluke? And Texas goes on to dominate the rest of the season. Uh, by the way, thank you, Nicole. I saw you give us some some uh, kind words on on Twitter, and I definitely appreciate that as well. Um, you know, I'll be honest. After the Alabama game, I thought they had two tricky games back-to-back. UTSA, who's better than most people think and has a really good quarterback, and then Texas Tech in Lubbock, not an easy place to play. So I thought it would have been – I thought it was pretty impressive that they got – they handled UTSA the way they did. Um, is a tough back-to-back. And now you got West Virginia coming up at home and then obviously Red River. I mean, look, Stu was the one who was really skeptical on them. And I think he raised the bar from four and eight to eight and four, maybe. Is that right? Not quite that high. Um, seven and five. But just like, for the, and the, yeah, go ahead. But I, I think this program, there's a lot of reasons for optimism. I'm not... If you told me right now, because I think what's changing this is they're going into the SEC maybe sooner than maybe a little sooner than even, you know, the the, the deadline was going to be on that to leave the Big 12. And that's going to be much tougher. Right. It's just going to be a much tougher road of, of better teams, you know, on a consistent basis. And so the bar will be higher. But what I like about them is. They have some really good young offensive linemen in the program. And I think that's critical for them because it's been a long time since it feels like they had that kind of foundational piece. And I'm talking about a really, really long time. So that's good. I mean, I think um, you and I were both impressed by what we saw from Quinn Ewers in a quarter and a half against a really big time Alabama defense. And I would not be surprised if he's back this weekend against West Virginia. At the very least, I would definitely expect him back against Oklahoma. And, you know, then we'll see what happens with the battle. Like, I mean, I think Hudson Card is, has played pretty well in his absence. And I think he's shown some stuff. Obviously, you have Bijan. Obviously, you know, the other thing that's that hurts them, I think, is you have a good tight end and a really dynamic receiver Um and Xavier Worthy, but you really don't have much receiver depth. And I think they are they are pretty limited in terms of uh, what they have outside. And I think their defense is very average. I mean, the personnel is very, very average. So I think they are an eight and four kind of team. And as you and I talked a lot about, Stu, and I'll jump out after this, is the big 12, there are no really bad teams. So I feel like almost anybody can get you, you know, yep. and, In that spirit, Bruce, I decided to try to figure out if that was possible. And the answer I came back with was no. And I mean, I'm sure it's mathematically possible, but in terms of like what I think could realistically happen, here are my revised, you ready? This is my revised predictions for the Big 12 standings. Um, I've got Kate. Call up your original one so I have a better frame of it. Are you going to? harken back so the people well i think people remember that uh k-state was the champ uh had ou going seven and five it was OU and texas were the ones texas going four and eight yeah okay i've definitely changed on some of those teams but maybe not to the extent that certainly nicole here is hoping for i got k-state and oklahoma state tying at seven and two ten and two so you're looking at a k-state oklahoma state championship game followed by oklahoma six and three nine and three Followed by the mighty Kansas Jayhawks at five and four, eight and four. You think Kansas can go eight and four? I do. Okay. They have a really good quarterback, so yes. Baylor, five and four, seven and five. They lost to uh, BYU. I just don't think they're as good as they were last year. Um, Texas, I have going six and six, four and five in conference, six and six overall. I think that if Quinn Ewers comes back and is just dominant, then I would obviously change that perception. But that's just, I just think this is a team that could be all over the map this year. Still, they're still pretty inexperienced. Texas Tech, also four and five, six and six. And then this is where I just, these teams I have missing a bowl, even though I don't think they're bad by any means. West Virginia, three and six, five and seven. 
Iowa State, this might be the more shocking one, two and seven, five and seven. TCU also two and seven, five and seven. Wow. Wow. Again, I don't think Iowa State and TCU are bad. I just think unless you think it's just going to be complete parity and nobody goes even seven and two, then somebody's got to miss the bowl. You have K-State and Oklahoma State winning 10 games? Yes. That's where, I, that's where I would disagree. I think those teams at best are nine win teams. And I think you, I'm not saying everybody's going to be, because that's, I feel like I would be saying that just to be saying something like that. But I don't think those two teams are 10 win teams. Do you think Oklahoma is? No, I think we have, I think they're the best is going to be a bunch of nine and three. Teams. So we're going to top out at nine and three, I which do. is going to be like some of those. Pac-12, I remember there was a year where 9-3 and three Washington played 9-3 and three Utah, and everybody ripped on the Pac-12. But again, I don't think this is because these teams are bad. It's just there's no there's no gimmies. Anybody will be able – truly, anybody will be able to beat anybody on a given Saturday. I also think there's no gimmies, and there is nobody with a significant talent advantage. I just don't think that's the case in this. Like, if you look at it, what's interesting is – and somewhere in Arizona or Dallas, wherever the hell he lives, Ari Wasserman is probably is probably cringing at this, Mr. Stars Matter, because the two teams you have at 10 wins, um, I'd be curious if if either one had a top 25 class amongst them between, I'm sure K-State hasn't, and I'm pretty sure Oklahoma State hasn't either. Well, on in that line, in, in that, I was a little surprised when you said nobody has a talent advantage, because I would think people assume Oklahoma does. I, I don't know. I mean, Oklahoma lost some, re- like, if you ask me, like, who were the two most dynamic players in their program last year, they both left one and they both went to USC. Now, I think Marvin Mims is really good. Um, and I would put him right, right there with Mario Williams, but Caleb was different. I mean, I think Dylan Gabriel's a really good um, alternative, but I don't think he's as talented as Caleb is. And just, you know, you got, you have an offensive line and, uh, you know, Harrison's a really good offensive, talented offensive lineman, but I just don't think this OU team is, feels like, like when you had Baker, when you have, you said Kyler and Jalen Hurts, I think those guys could, could carry an offense just in a different way a little bit, um, you know, and defense has always been kind of piecemeal a little bit and I don't I just don't think their defense is and it's easy to say this now after you know Adrian and and Deuce just lit them up but I just don't think their defense is is enough like I don't think there's a ton of talent on that side of the ball there's some good players but okay for the record everybody that is Bruce saying that not me after I I got so um so many so much uh venom from Oklahoma fans all summer for daring to suggest well, you had, him as, just gonna reload. you had him as a seven and five team. I yes. And I admit that was too low, but, but the idea they, they didn't even, they couldn't even accept the idea that maybe they might be less talented than, than recent years. So um, why don't you, why don't you ask? Hey, can we just circle on one thing here? Um, yep. The thing I said a minute ago, cause I just have ended up looking it up. Um you know, on this, on the uh, talent ranking, because I would imagine, you know, of what you've spoken, you feel like Oklahoma State is the class of the conference, right? No, I think can't. I, I just, I don't think anybody's the class of the conference, but I have K State and Oklahoma State, you know, as a hair over OU. Yeah, I mean, and then you, I think there's a drop off. Although I do love my Jayhawks. If you look at what Oklahoma State, what their re- recruiting rankings are, just for mm-hmm. the sake of them being a 10-win team, which, again, credit to Mike Gundy and that staff that they're doing it, but they average rank is about like 35 or 36 for the last five years. And, the, and they were uh, literally like an inch, six inches from making the playoff last year. Like that they – Mike Gundy, I don't think it's nearly enough credit for – I mean, on the one hand, you could say, like, why doesn't he recruit better in the first place? but he definitely makes the most of what he does recruit. Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting because when you go back at the other team, you're talking about K state and look, we're both big fans of Chris Kleiman, um, but their rankings are dramatically worse, right? They're we're talking about, if you go back over this five-year stretch, it's a bunch of classes in the sixties and in the high fifties, which is crazy. 
to think they're getting a a 10 win team out of it. I think it's three classes in the 60s and two in the upper 50s. So the average ranking is around low 60s. And this is why when Texas and Oklahoma leave, um, the conference, you know, you've got a lot of good programs, but you're not going to have even one program that recruits at a top 25 level. I certainly don't think they're going to suddenly recruit better uh, in the, in the new configuration, unless UCF, you know, with power five affiliation turns into that or Cincinnati or BYU. Yeah. I don't think Oklahoma state's recruiting rankings are going to suddenly jump up in the 24 seven talent composite rankings, which I don't know that they're that reliable anymore because they don't account for transfers, but uh, Oklahoma's number nine, uh, Texas, well, Texas would be higher than that, right? Texas is number six. Oklahoma is number nine. Texas does not have the sixth most talented roster in college football. Today, right? They have the 16th most talented. Yeah. Um, and then you got to go down to TCU at 32 among the big 12. Oklahoma state is 40. Baylor is 42. West Virginia, 44, Texas tech, 45. Uh, Joey McGuire is getting that Texas tech ranking up. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. All right, let's all right. Let's do this question. I want to ask you is from Blaine in Virginia. As analytics have made their way into in-game decision making, the coaching evaluation process remains as unscientific as ever. By the way, just I'll get back to Blaine's question in a second. But speaking of of analytics and college football, uh, our for buddy Sam Khan had a really good story on CIA, which is CAI, CAI, which is a uh, analytics company that a lot of schools use for their game book that sometimes they use the decisions they're not but uh how texas tech was a was utilizing that with the aforementioned joey mcguire so check there out actually that. is a company that does analytics for coaching searches sports source analytics yes that's true but, but uh, i don't okay. know anyway it's still it's still a very relevant question and also bruce how did you know it was from blaine i forgot to paste it in there you must have did it in a previous because like because I'm looking at it. Um, oh, I see. I, I, I accidentally cut and pasted from a different section. OK, go ahead. Any stat person or handicapper can tell you that a one point win or a one point loss are essentially the same for determining team quality. Yet we see massive overreactions to short luck in close games. Tom Herman was fired for losing three games by a combined 13 points. Mel Tucker was given a ninety five million dollar deal for a single good season where he went four and oh in one possession games will the consequence for michigan state and texas wise and ad's up what do you think Stu? well he, he's absolutely right he's absolutely right now i don't think tom herman was fired for losing three games by no, there's more to it. there's a lot more to it than that. i think he was going to get fired whether he won or lost those three games um the mel tucker thing i mean from all indications that was one very, very, very rich booster who probably got very caught up and excited in the, what did they start? 8-0, 9-0 last year, something like that. Yeah. Beat Michigan and gave this guy a fully guaranteed $95 million contract. Now, I think Mel Tucker's a good coach. So I'm not, you know, jumping By off the bandwagon. Mel Tucker also had, he was a hot name with ties to LSU. There were big jobs open. I'm not saying. Yeah, that's, that's a know, part. Yeah, that, that was a big part of it. You know, if this happened this year, I don't know if if Auburn or Georgia Tech, certainly not Nebraska, would be jobs that people go, oh, yeah, Mel Tucker may leave for that. Whereas yeah. there are people inside LSU. I'm not saying they would have taken him over Brian Kelly. I don't know that for certain. I mean, I'm sure that they would say they wouldn't have now, but I don't know. I, I know there's some influential people inside LSU that really like Mel Tucker. And, and he was being mentioned for USC. So that, that was obviously a big part of it. I think Mel Tucker is a good coach. Uh, I think that was very, very, very premature. And so it actually reminds me a little bit, and I'm not saying this is how it's going to turn out, but it reminds me a little bit of Charlie Weiss getting that huge contract midway through his first season for almost wow. beating USC. Ouch. Yeah. Mel just Tucker the, just the jump. It's just... Mel you Tucker people, ever sees you in person, you are getting. I am again not so not predicting not. that, not predicting that. I think he'll do well, uh, but with that kind of contract, let's say he goes. Uh, I thought Charlie six. Weiss got that deal for for a close loss to USC as much as anything else. Like that was the probably the high. That's water. why. That's why he got it. But they it was a close loss. He was going to get a. Um, 
Maybe they were worried he was going to get an NFL head coaching job after that season. So yeah. again, like when you when you're doing these things before the guy's first season is even over, you're probably getting caught up in the emotions instead of looking at any sort of analytics, as Blaine is suggesting. So and one other one other point on Blaine's uh, Tom Herman, pretty small sample size at Houston, right? You know, he ended up basically winning with Tony Levine players, and he was there for two about two years and out the gate. Um, you know, similar Scott Frost, small sample size, you know, so Mel Tucker, you know, he didn't have, he was at, at CU for one season, small sample size. So it's, it's, it's a gamble. And obviously, as you said, you know, you have a former walk-on basketball player at Michigan state, who's made a lot of money, who is a believer and look, that's, we'll see how it plays out. Well, it's going to be interesting just with all these coaches who get these super duper contracts, right? Mario Cristobal um, is, is, you know, what happens if you're two, three years into it and they're not, I mean, Jimbo, I think is, is borderline. He did have that one really good season and you're just like, well, this is our guy. There's not much more you can do. All right, Bruce, this one, we had to do some, some preparation for Jason Garluski, our friend in Columbia, South Carolina, Bruce and Stewart, the Brock Bowers thing, who, by the way, Brock Bowers, number two on the athletics Heisman straw poll this week. It's getting out of control. I can't remember a tight end being this good. He's a weapon they just hand off to like a Percy Harvin or a Debo Samuel, which got me to thinking, what is your Mount Rushmore of college football tight ends? Here is mine. And this is Jason's. Kyle Pitts, Kellen Winslow Jr., Jason Witten, and Daniel Graham. No doubt those were all four very, very good college tight ends. I feel like I should know this by now, but I feel like Jason Gorluski and you must be about the same age. That's like kind of your window. Um, maybe a yeah. little older because of Daniel. I don't know. Yeah, he's going. You know, a little bit late. When was Daniel Graham? Mid mid nineties, late nineties. Yeah, he's definitely pre clat. Um, I'm guessing Jason's like four years younger than me. Okay, I'm sure we're gonna find out before too long. All right, give us your Mount Rushmore. Now we both agreed we were gonna try to. Yeah, we were not. We were. Kind we're of not gonna copy enough. his list. Yeah, whoever we felt like. Um, you know, we were more of believers in or whatever. So um, anyway, by the way, on Daniel Graham, just to know, he is actually older. He was close. He overlapped with Clad, I believe. He was 98 to 2001. That's why I'm saying I think, I yeah, think um, Jason's four years younger. Okay. I mentioned this guy the other day. It kind of reminded me in some ways of how they're utilizing um Brock Bowers, and that's Keith Jackson. They did not throw it a lot. He never had more than 22 catches in a season. What is crazy is his last three years at OU, he averaged probably almost 27 yards a catch. Uh, in 65 catches, had 15 touchdowns for his career. He also averaged 14 yards a carry. Um, at one in his in his uh 14 in his couple, yards per carry for a tight end. Yeah, and his for in his in a sophomore season, seven carries for 53 yards. That's an average of 22 yards a carry was just a special talent on a team that didn't throw it a lot. Um, Rob, so Brock Bowers is the, is the Keith Jackson of our time. I think. Yes. I don't know if he has as, as if he's as good a talker and colorful a character as Keith Jackson was, but, um, and he was on the beginning of my college football fandom, but I knew what, a, what, a, what a weapon he was. Rob Gronkowski at Arizona. What I loved about him was Sonny Dykes went over there as um, Mike Stoops' OC. They were doing some air raid stuff, and they're like, oh, we got a weapon here that we haven't seen before. And he became a huge red zone force for them. And obviously, he was a kind of a cultural phenomenon, folk hero guy on top of that. Uh, Vernon Davis, he would be my third guy. I'm going to take him. He's like... You know, I had this conversation the other day when I ran into Loxley um, at the Michigan-Maryland game. Vernon Davis is like super freaky athlete. Um, you know, he was his last year there had over 50 catches, runs better than most receivers. It wasn't like he had a, you know, I'm looking at it in his career there in three seasons, 83 catches for 1,400 yards, nine touchdowns. There were guys who were more prolific, but I just thought it was just kind of a special athlete. Um and I didn't really have a fourth guy. Um, you know, I, he has Kyle Pitts. I mean, you I can, would, you can take, you can, we can each take one from Jason's list. I'm, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to take Kyle Pitts. I mean, how could you go wrong with Kyle Pitts? So 
that would that would uh, that would be my fourth guy. I too have Kyle Pitts on there. I, I you know up until this year, he was probably, I mean, he was such a weapon, and you know probably you know, probably had one of the best seasons for a tight end ever in 2020. Um, all right, going backward though, I've got Jeremy Shockey. Uh, and again, that's towards the beginning of my time covering the sport. He became kind of a cult hero for one thing, but he was a big part of the rise of Miami uh, under Larry Coker, under Butch Davis, and then under Larry Coker. Correct. Yeah. Um, I wanted an Iowa tight end. I didn't think I could do this without an Iowa tight end. And there were lots of good choices, but I'm going with Dallas Clark, who was um, in the, you know, the Kirk Ferentz 2002 season where that program really took off and went to the Orange Bowl. Uh, Dallas Clark, 43 catches for 742 yards. That's a lot uh, for a tight end, especially in that era. Um, Notre Dame has had a lot of good tight ends over the years. It was hard to pick one. I'm going with Tyler Eifert. Um, 2011, 63 catches for 803 yards, followed by on the team that went to the national title game, 50 catches for 685 yards. Uh, Kyle Rudolph would have been uh, uh, in the mix as well. And and that's it, right? Those are my four. Kyle Pitts, Dallas Clark, uh, Tyler Eifert, Jeremy Shockey. You had said to me, how can you not have a Stanford guy on the list uh, living near there? They have definitely had a heck of a run. I just don't know that there's one that's like Mount Rushmore-esque more so than the others. Maybe Zach Ertz, but Zach Ertz is one of three first-round tight ends at that time. Uh, a couple of ones that for omission and this, this one, you know, I covered a little bit when he was in college and certainly knew about it, even he was part of this, you know, prodigious high school team, Mercedes Lewis, still playing, still a great blocker was quite a weapon at UCLA 21 career touchdowns. A um, couple other guys who had really prolific careers, Chase Kaufman, remember him at, at Mizzou. Um, I think Chase was in the Chase Daniel era. Uh, 30 touchdown catches. He averaged over 60 catches a year. Jermaine Gresham from OU, another one. He was great. He was great. Heath Miller, who had a really good NFL career from UVA. That would be another one. You obviously mentioned Dallas Clark. Um, Another name, which brings a lot of infamy, Aaron Hernandez from Florida. Um, Dennis. They were, yeah, yeah. Aaron Hernandez. Travis Beckham from Wisconsin. Um, and then we're just kind of rolling around. You get to, you get to Shockey, you get to Kellen Winslow. You know, what would be nice. So all we really have to go by when you're looking up these guys from the past is their receiving stats, but obviously a tight end is also very, very important. If not more so as a blocker, we at the athletic have access to all these amazing advanced stats from PFF and true media. Um, but one, but you don't see, um, a lot of like, you get these PFF offensive lineman grades. Wouldn't it be great if you had tight end blocking grades? Hey, ask anybody in the NFL now about what Mercedes Lewis still does as a blocker. I mean, Mercedes Lewis is like your age and he's mauling people still. So that's my age. He's not my age, but how many seasons? Let's see. How many seasons has he been in the NFL? Because I feel like he didn't, he play for, um, he might have played for Carl Durrell. Um, Shoot, I play for Terry Donahue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he was on that Long Beach Poly Five crew. He's the one who went to UCLA. The other guy, yeah, I was right. He's been in the NFL since 2006. Um, so he would have played for uh, end of Bob Toledo, beginning of Carl Durrell. Yeah, yeah. man, that is poof. I can't believe he's still going. All right. Um, all right, Brian Black in Atlanta. Bruce, you just saw this team in, up and close and personal. Maryland was impressive against Michigan, even in defeat. They might have one of the better offenses in the Big Ten by the end of the year. Wisconsin was completely outclassed by Ohio State, and their offense remains lackluster. Which is more likely to happen? Maryland finishes in the top three in the Big Ten East, or Wisconsin finishes outside the top three in the Big Ten West? Ooh, tough question. Um, I feel like they're the they may be the fourth best team in the East just because I think Penn state is, is pretty, it's pretty dangerous. Um, they have some good young talent on both sides of the ball. I think they actually have more talent on defense. 
What I liked about Maryland from seeing them up close is we know they have really good receivers. Keep in mind that like the best one of the bunch who is not even a year out from his injury, but is close to that, um, you know, is Dante Demas is not 100%. He's on a pitch count. So they're doing it without him. You know, Rakim Jarrett's good. Jay Sean Jones is good. Copeland is good. I mean, they have a lot of weapons. I I think I struggle to put them pat like just that's the thing. Top three in the East means you've got to say they're going to finish better than Michigan or Penn State. I think they can. I think they can have a shot to get to eight wins. But I I, I just don't. I wouldn't put it. You know, the, he, it's a tough one because I I think Wisconsin still. I'd be very surprised if Wisconsin fell out of that side. You know, I look at Wisconsin. see that's where I differ from you. This was an easy answer for me. I think Wisconsin's got issues. I think they've been building for a few years. Graham Mertz is just not the guy. Um, so you're saying, but like the way I understand uh, his question is you got three teams in the West. You feel, I get it. Minnesota, I would feel that way. I don't know who the other two teams are. Well, I'm not saying that I have ones that are de- Minnesota for sure. I'm not saying there's all two others that are definitely Iowa. better than Wisconsin, but Iowa. it would it really surprise, would it really shock you? if Purdue finished higher in the big 10 West standings than Wisconsin, Iowa, everybody loves to make fun of that offense, but they still, I bet you they still turn around and win eight or nine games. Um, The one that's like kind of a sleeper to keep an eye on is Illinois. Uh, They're starting to play Bielema ball. Um, um, and, and we know put, how dangerous your alma mater is when they when they when they lose all the non <laughs> when they lose all the non conference games is exactly when you got to watch out for them to go seven and two in the Big Ten. So uh, like Wisconsin's schedule like is pretty light from here. So I guessing they still finish in the top three, but I still I, that's that would be less shocking to me that Wisconsin finishes fourth in the Big Ten West than Maryland finishing higher than Michigan or Penn State. Yeah, I feel like your alma mater is a little bit like the, the, the golfer who's on the driving range isn't satisfied till he broke three windshields in the parking lot. Where's the first? I don't know. I'm not writing off Iowa at this point because we've seen them have really mediocre offenses and be so good on defense. I think their secondary is really good. I'm fascinated to get to Iowa City, which is a great place to spend a football Saturday, um, a football weekend. And we got Michigan and and there, and I think, look, the, it's a, one of the craziest stats going right now is that in the last six games where a top five team has come into Iowa City, Iowa is five and one, not five and one against the spread, just five and one outright. I know. I remember Michigan was undefeated going in. Now, granted, a lot of these games, I remember they were at night, but Michigan going in there undefeated Urban Meyer bringing the team in there and just got absolutely annihilated. I know it's hard to, <laughs> given what Iowa's offense is like now, the idea that they scored 55 on them is just wild. All right, Stu, last question from Evan W. Walsh. Stu stated that Jaden Ott was Cal's highest rated recruit in recent memory on the previous podcast. While he was the highest in the 2022 class, Two players in the previous class, Sturdivant and Terry, were both rated higher by Rivals.com. Stu, explain yourself. Evan, thanks for keeping me honest. I, there's just so many nuggets floating around in my head, and I had sworn that I saw that he was not that he was the highest rated offensive recruit in a long time. Clearly not, because those guys are receivers. But I did do a little research, and Jade Mott is the highest ranked running back recruit for Cal since 2011. I could give you 10 guesses on who that running back was in 2011. You'll never get it. Well, the one I think of the most, and he's probably before that was Javid Best. Yeah, all those guys, Javid Best, Lynch, Marshawn Lynch, uh, Shane. Well, Green. I know Marshawn Lynch is way before that. but Yeah, uh, uh, it was Brent, Brendan Bigelow. Oh, I know. He was super fast. That's probably why he was rated so high. Yeah, he actually was a three and out guy at Cal, but it's not like he put up uh, big stats, but so yeah, uh, Jay Nott is like 200. Uh, he would, you know, that's a high, by the way, that's a high ranking for Cal, just so you know, like he's ranked 200 something overall, but um, Jay Nott, interesting little path there. He is um, spent some time at Bishop Gorman in Vegas and also is here at Norco in Southern California was a very coveted, you know, legit track guy. If you watch him run, he's got, he's got a lot of speed. 
Um, USC was interested. I don't know if the new staff chased him that hard and ended up at Cal. I want to ask you before we go, um, you know, they beat Arizona, who's much improved. They lost at Notre Dame close. They beat a UNLV team that's not bad anymore. So now they have, you look at their schedule. What do you think the Bears are capable of? Because it seems like maybe people are undervaluing them a little bit. Yeah, I think I'm definitely seeing some cause for excitement out of Cal that I didn't necessarily expect coming into the year. I thought they were really going to miss uh, Chase Garbers for one, but Jack Plummer, the transfer from Purdue, is is playing really well. And then obviously they got a, a great running back. They're not as good on defense as they have been in the past under Justin Wilcox, but here, let's look at this. They're going to Washington State this week. That's going to be tough, even though Washington State's coming off a crushing loss. Then you got Colorado. Uh, you've got Washington at home. You've got Oregon at home. Um, then you got to go to USC. Then you got to go to Oregon State. I don't know that they're going to, I think they're still going to be fortunate to get to six wins, but I think they're moving in the right direction. Yeah. You know what hurts them is no Arizona State, which, you know, Colorado and Arizona State, we think are the two worst teams in the league. So you're only getting one of them. Um, and you've got know. a lot of tough games on the road. Yeah, look, I mean, if they can somehow get by Washington State this week, you know, like the hard thing for them is they're going to have four games in a row, Washington, Oregon, at USC, at Oregon State. They will be lucky to win more than one of those games, you know, so I could see where you're coming from. And say, I think they'll get to six wins. I don't know if they'll get much more to that, but but I would be if I'm a Cal fan who has been kind of stuck in with not much reason for enthusiasm recently. Uh, I think it's a good sign for the future of the program that there's a, if nothing else, a, a real stud freshman running back. Yeah. He's a good coach without a lot of resources, at least in terms of the commitment to football. We talked about that with Georgia tech before. I would definitely say that's the case at Cal as well. Um, so as always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. Anything else too? Anything else? No, have fun in Iowa and we'll see you Sunday. All right.